Mark 14, 17 to 21. We are in another text that critics of the Bible will say had to be fabricated. It had to be manufactured. It had, and if there's any semblance of truth to it, it is surely exaggerated to foster the unwarranted belief uh, on part of the disciples, to foster the unwarranted belief that Jesus had supernatural knowledge and that he knew that he was going to die. Last week we looked at uh, Albert Schweitzer's uh, view, um, among with many um, of his day, that Jesus was just a man who tried to, he was an ambitious man, and he tried to take the wheels of history and turn them and cater, use them to cater to his whims and his eschatological dreams. But as he said, the wheel didn't turn for Jesus. And rather than fulfilling his dreams, it crushed him. Well, we see from this scripture, along with many others, if we take them not as propaganda, but as what they are, verified truth claims by multiple eyewitnesses of the things that Jesus said, not in some dark alley or in a corner of a room, but in the presence of multiple and many witnesses. This is the verifiable and corroborated true word of God. And because it is what God says it is, we can believe that Jesus knew precisely what was coming in this text, particularly that he was being betrayed by one of his own. But more importantly, if if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, you can know that you have eternal life because he wasn't just a man. He was the God-man who came to earth to die for sinners like you and like me. So I am personally affected as to whether or not this truly happened. And I thank God that he has written down what happened in his reliable and trustworthy word. We can divide the narrative into four points. The arrival of the party into the upper room, verse 17. The announcement of the betrayer, verse 18. The affliction that the announcement will cause, verses 19 and 20. And then the accountability of the betrayer's actions in verse 21. Let's read the text. When it was evening... He, being Jesus, came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me, in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Let's consider first the arrival, the safe arrival of the party at the upper room. Mark now shifts the scene. Last last week we looked, it was sometime in the morning. 
of Passover day, it is now close to 6 p.m. when the Passover proper was supposed to begin. It is evening of Passover day. And you'll recall that earlier in the day, Jesus had sent two disciples, who Luke tells us was Peter and John, on an assignment to find a house and to prepare there to prepare the Passover meal. Well, that was, that was midday or, or early morning. It is now time to celebrate that Passover meal. That time has now arrived. And so Jesus brings along the rest of the twelve, and they safely arrive at the now furnished and ready large upper room where there is a prepared Passover meal for them to enjoy. I, I, I point out, and I must emphasize, that this was a safe arrival because you will remember that the religious leaders have been seeking to kill Jesus for some time. And we saw at the beginning of the chapter that they, are, they have now upped their game. And one of, them has, one of the disciples has gone to them and has provided uh, a very, very opportune... Um, opportune no, I can't say that has provided an opportunity for them to carry out their wishes uh, expediently, ahead of schedule. And so there is no doubt some concern, even though the twelve don't know that there is a betrayer at hand, they know Jesus has enemies. They know Jesus has enemies, and as they made the journey in the dark of the evening to the appointed place of the Passover, remember, every day up until now, they are in the city during the day when, they, when Jesus is surrounded by people, and when evening comes, they leave the city, they go back to Bethany, where Jesus was staying in relative obscurity, where his enemies didn't know where he was. And as they are now going back into the city in evening... And they're turning this corner, they're going down that alleyway, they're turning that corner. They had good reason to fear being discovered or being recognized by one of Jesus' many foes. Powerful men who wouldn't hesitate to strike Jesus down if they knew he wasn't surrounded by the crowds who were adulating him, who were lauding him as their Messiah. But as we discussed last week, Jesus is not a helpless victim. He is sovereign. And he knew precisely when and how how his hour would take place. And he would not allow anything to disrupt or interrupt this most important time, this most intimate and important time with his disciples. He wouldn't allow himself to be taken and to be killed before the right time. And so... While there was uh, a very real possibility for for drama or for incident or for problems to arise if this were any other man, because this is the God-man, there is no drama, there is no incident, there is no hazard or, or hindering, because Christ has taken care of all the arrangements in advance. And that's a good thing for us to be reminded of, isn't it? That Christ always takes care of things in advance. Scripture tells us he is before all things. Being God, he is previous to all things. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing causes him to pace. Things cause you and I to to pace back and forth. Things cause you and I to lose sleep, not Jesus. Nothing causes him to become frantic. He always knows, beloved, he always knows what 
to do. He is before all things. And being at his side is always the best place to be. Mark that down in your heart. Being at his side is the best place to be. Better is one day in his courts and a thousand elsewhere, says the song. So at an hour when they when there could have been problems, when harm could have been caused to them, when there are men looking out for his head, they arrive safely. They arrive at the house with the upper room. And this is the room where he will make the announcement, verse 18. And what an announcement this will be. This will be a bombshell of an announcement. Verse 18, Mark takes us directly uh, into the meal there was uh, uh, where Peter and John have prepared. Uh, and there was a, uh, uh, an order. There was an order of service. It's called the Seder. If you have Jewish friends, you may have heard the Seder before. Seder means the service. There was a, a, a rather detailed order of things to go, and I could, uh, I could tell you all, all the steps that were to be taken. But uh, notice that Mark doesn't feel that that's important to bring up. So we're not going to we're not going to go into that. Mark makes a beeline for what is most important. And that's what happens when they were eating. Tells us verse 18, as they were reclining at, at the table and as they were eating. And so roughly in the in this long order of stuff that was going on. Which, you know, if you try to compare the Gospels and, and, and uh, do a survey of, of everything that they tell us about this Passover meal, you're going to get lost trying to figure out when this event correlates to that part of the order. Um, but the fact that Mark says they were eating, this is roughly halfway through the meal. This is, this is the, the part where they are spending some time conversing and enjoying the meal and eating and, and drinking. Mark makes a beeline for what he sees is the most important thing to know. And that's that Jesus knows his betrayer. Jesus knows there is a betrayer at hand. He says, verse 18, truly I say to you as they are eating, he says this, that one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Now what a marvelous way that Jesus makes this announcement. It may seem odd that he doesn't announce who it is. I would. You probably would. Jesus does not expose Judas. That may seem odd, but it is actually quite marvelous. He simply reveals the act and says that one, what one of them will do, and he says the effect that it will, that will come upon that man. And he does it this way to bring the most powerful pressure upon the betrayer's conscience and senses. So that even now, in this late hour, in the eleventh hour, the betrayer might fall down and that he might have not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is only sorrowful because it got caught in the consequences. Godly sorrow is sorrow is sad because it recognizes that sin is sinful. 
And Jesus does what he does that Judas might fall down in godly sorrow and that he might repent at the seat of Jesus in the presence of all and that he might receive pardon and forgiveness of his sins. We'll even see in the final moments when Judas has led the armed mob to Jesus, as Matthew's gospel tells us, that there was a sign that Judas would give to the, to the mob, to the men with him. He would identify the one they were to seize with a what? With a kiss. And in Luke's gospel, Luke records that as Jesus, Luke doesn't tell you about that sign, but Luke says, t- tells us that as Judas is approaching Jesus, before Judas even gets there, Jesus says this, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus knows. John 18.4 says, Jesus knew all the things that were coming upon him. And as he walked boldly, as he was undaunted by the mob, and he walks boldly towards them, bold like a lion, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's not going to talk him talk his way out of this he's not going to bargain his way out of this he knows what's going to happen he knew when jesus when judas approached him to kiss him he knew when the mob first arrived he knew before the mob arrived he knew earlier that night over dinner as we will see tonight he knew as he triumphantly marched into jerusalem earlier that week he knew all the time they were walking from Galilee through Perea to Judea. Jesus knew while they were in Galilee. Jesus knew not that not just that some might leave him or that some someone might or probably or most certainly could likely be capable of doing something like betrayal. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. John 6:64. 6, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And someone may say, yeah, well, Jesus was speaking to a big, massive crowd. You you run the statistics, you run the numbers, you carry the three. Of course, there could be somebody who would betray him. This was just a a calculated guess. This was just just a, a statistical probability that somebody would. But... How could he know it was someone above the 12? No one, no one would have known which of his closest friends would betray him. But John says in 6, John 6, 70, recording what Jesus said, Did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And John adds this commentary. This is not something Jesus says. John adds his commentary. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knows, but doesn't disclose the identity of his betrayer. All he says is, one of you will betray me. Now, Let's look at this verb. What, what verb does Jesus use? What verb dominates that sentence? What? Daniel? I saw your mouth move. I didn't hear what you said. Betray. 
This was a this was a very common word in the New Testament. And when it was used of things, I don't have any candy bars to reward you with right now. I'm sorry. When, when this word was used of, of things like a candy bar, things like money, when, it, when this word was used of possessions, of things, of stuff, uh, it could be rendered and, and it meant to, to hand over, to, 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 to give over, to deliver to, to entrust, to commit to. But it took on a very uh, certain meaning when it was used of people. When it was used of people, it meant to hand over or to deliver over to judgment. It means being given over, being delivered to the courts, being delivered to the judge, being delivered to the executioner. It means being given over independently of your will, independently of your desire, independently of what you can say or do in the matter. Because you can't say or do anything in the matter. And so with this context here, you can see why it is rightly rendered, not just handed over or delivered. It is, it is rendered betray. Betray. One of you will, be, will hand me over like I'm, like I'm a thing. One of you will betray me. Think about what effect that would have on the twelve. Think about the impact of Jesus' words on these men who have spent day in and day out with him. Seven days a week, 365 days a year for three to three and a half years. He has been their teacher. He has been their rabbi. He has been their master. He has been, he has revealed himself as the king. And not just a king, the king. He is the the Lord's anointed. He is the Lord's Christ. He is the son of David, the Messiah. He is the greatest prophet ever to live. And he has, for those who have had ears to hear, he is God in the flesh. One of you is going to betray me. One of you who has been with me and has seen all these things will betray me. When Jesus says one of you, you know what that does? Puts every one of those 12 men, every single one of them, no exceptions, under the shadow of suspicion. One of you. Not, not, you know, not one of you, but not, definitely not you, Fred, but one of you guys over here. No, he, he points to the whole group. One of you will betray me he's told them before that he would be betrayed we saw that as early as mark 9 31 son of man will be delivered over but he never said by whom and when mark introduced us in chapter 3 19 to judas iscariot he adds the commentary uh when he lists judas last he says uh that jesus called judas iscariot parentheses, who would betray him. That is Mark's commentary. That is not what Jesus said when he said, hey, Judas, come and follow me. He didn't say, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to betray me later. No. That was Mark's commentary. In John 12, when John tells us that Judas was a thief and that he said, well, what about the poor? Not that he cared about the poor, because he, but because he liked to pilfer from the money box. And he was a thief from the beginning. That's John's commentary. That's not something Jesus said in the group. And so it would be understandable 
that if the one who would instigate and be the means and cause of this betrayal would be somebody who's on the outside, it would make sense. It would be plausible and, and somewhat understandable if it's a rival. Somebody on the outside, somebody who is not a close associate, somebody who is not a disciple, somebody who is not a close friend. But here for the first time, Jesus says, it's not going to be an outsider. It's not going to be a rival. It's not going to be somebody who looks like a rival. It's going to be somebody who looks like a close, intimate Friend, it's going to be somebody who is, it's going to be one who is here among you. Somebody who's on the inside, somebody who's been here since the beginning, who's been with me and with you every step of the way. One of you will betray me. It will be one who is so close. He's not merely a disciple. He is like family. And that's exactly what the 12 have been to Jesus. It was not customary for rabbis to observe Passover with their disciples. It was somewhat odd that Jesus would tell the man, where is the room, where is my guest room that I may observe the Passover with my disciples? That was odd. They are not just disciples, they are like family. Isn't that what Jesus said way back in chapter 3? Who is my brother and mother and sister but those who... Hear the word of God. It'll be one who is like family. It is. It'll be one whose heart is so would appear to be so closely knit together. It will be a friend. It would be one who you would suspect would be a friend, one who you would expect to love me. And to defend me. It will be one of them. It will be one who here reclines at the table, who appears to be my friend, who appears to be your friend, one who appears to be one of you. It will be one who fulfills what David wrote of his friend Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 15. Well, the event happened in 2 Samuel 15 and 16, but David writes in Psalm 41, 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. And when Jesus says, one who who dips in the bowl with me, one who eats with me, that should have sprung to their minds. It is one who ate my bread. He has lifted up his heel against me. Precisely what Jesus means when he says that the betrayer is one who, in the present tense, one who is eating with me right now. One who, who being with me and eating at my table, eating the food that I have provided. One who has customarily been with me and one who is eating the bread with me right now. One of you will betray me. You can see in the next two verses, verses 19 and 20, that the men didn't take this lightly. They were afflicted. We see the affliction of the men, of the disciples. And I'm sure that some of you, most of you, if, if you have been in a few revolutions around the sun, some, most of you know what it's like. You know the bitter cup, the, t- the bitter taste of the cup of betrayal. 
you know it stings. You know it hurts. You know betrayal hurts where few things can reach. Perhaps someone who was close to you, someone you trusted, someone you became vulnerable to, someone who took advantage of that trust and vulnerability for their own gain. Perhaps it was a neighbor. Perhaps it was a business partner that you went into business with and you invested your precious resources with. Perhaps it was a close friend whom you had fond memories with prior. Perhaps it is a a family member. Perhaps a family member who has become bitter and jealous and self-centered as an estate is being divided. You can understand why they began to be grieved because you know the bitter sting. You know the poison of betrayal. That's what Mark tells us they began, they, they, was their experience. Verse 19, they began to be grieved. It was as if an arrow had pierced their heart. And whatever it was that they had, were talking about moments ago, that, that, that conversation, that is forgotten. That is long gone. The joy and the serenity that was supposed to mark this meal, that joy has been replaced by deep sorrow. And for a moment... They are silenced in their remorse and they are paralyzed by their distress. And there, you know that there have been things that Jesus has said that has gone right over their head. This has hit them square in the chest. This has taken their breath away. And for once, for, for, uh, once in his life, Peter doesn't have anything to say. John 13:22 John tells us that they that they first looked at each other and at first they 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 weren't certain of who he spoke there were times where they would argue about who was the greatest and which one of them it could have been but at this point in this instance they were so shocked that they didn't say a word and as the moments pass i don't was it a few moments was it a was it a long pregnant pause they began to look at themselves which beloved that is a good thing to do they began to look at themselves and to to look introspectively and one by one they build up the fortitude and they ask him surely not i and the way this is phrased, you know that you can phrase a question where you are hoping, you're hoping, you are anticipating, you are pleading that the answer is going to be a positive or a negative. Wait, we can go to the movies this weekend, right? I'm assuming yes. Dad's not going to be angry when he, when he gets home and sees what I, you're not going to tell dad what I did. I'm, I'm hoping no. I hope to know a lot as a kid. And so the way this is phrased, they are praying, they are hoping that Jesus is going to give them a reassuring negative, a reassuring denial. No, it's not you, Cliff. No, it's not you, Daniel. No, it's not you, Mandy. They, they are hoping that Jesus will respond and go around the room. No, it's not you. No, it's not you. And they're hoping that they will, that he will identify who it is. They are assuming he knows who it is. Now, this tells us two 
things. One, and maybe this is obvious to you, nobody suspected Judas. Is that remarkable? Now, see, this is perhaps hard for us because the gospel writers inform us, as I mentioned earlier with their commentary, they introduced Judas to us as the one who would betray him. We knew from the start. But nobody saw it coming. And so contrary to popular belief, Judas didn't have devil horns and he didn't have a forked tongue and he didn't have a mischievous grin or when he when he had the money, he didn't go like this and he didn't have that mischievous uh, uh, sleazeball mustache that when some guy has you go, you know, what? I don't trust you. <laughs> there was nothing external about Judas that gave him away. No one suspected Judas. And this tells us we can't judge by outer appearances. What does 1 Samuel 16, 17 tell us? Man judges by the outward appearance. God judges by the wallet. By how many memory verses you memorize. By how good your kids behave. How does God judge? Where does God look? And that tells us that even when Judas had to play the part of the saddened, remorseful disciple, and he had to join in, because if he didn't say if he didn't say what everyone else was saying, he'd kind of stick out a little bit. He joined in. He played the part, and he he likewise said, "Surely not I." Everybody else was fooled, except Jesus. Jesus wasn't fooled. Another thing we can see from this is that it is good to look at oneself introspectively. It is good to look at oneself with humility and with sincerity and with honesty and to evaluate where you are in your spiritual walk. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says to test yourselves. This This isn't advice. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Because while many have had a religious experience, when pressed again and again and again by the commands of Christ, Some will find that they have no drive, no desire, no unction to obey the commands of Christ. Why? Because they will find out they have no love for Christ. Why? Because they will find out if they're sincere, if they're consistent and honest, they will find out Christ is not in them. 2 Peter 1.10 says, to be all the more diligent. One translation says, to make every effort, to make certain about his calling and election concerning you. Make sure you are saved. Make sure you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure that you know him as your Lord. Make sure you know him as your redemptive Savior. Examine yourselves. There are many people who will say they're Christians and 
most of them, if not all of them, will genuinely believe so. They are convinced that they are the real deal. They will give, sadly, more thought, more passion. They will give more of their lives and more of themselves towards their local sports teams or the stock markets or, the jo- or their job or their stuff or, the temp- or any other temporary things of this life. They will put more of themselves into those temporary things, those things that are passing away, than they will put into their own spiritual walk of discipleship, which they claim to be on. Jesus said at the beginning, deny yourself and follow me. And sadly, if many were to take a moment of sincerity or perhaps a few moments and look at themselves, they would see that while they make a profession of following Christ, functionally they are denying Christ and that they are following themselves or the world. It is a good thing to examine yourself and make sure you are in the faith. Do you really believe the things that the Bible says are the truth? Or do you you find reason, do you come up with excuses to argue against the Scripture, to, uh, to justify not believing the Scripture? This goes into my intro. This is not, this is not propaganda. This is not fabricated myths to foster unwarranted claims. These are given to you and to me by eyewitnesses of the things that Jesus said and taught. Examine yourself. And so they've all asked him if they're the one. They've all asked him one by one, Surely not I. And 11 of them have asked in sincerity. One of them was, a, was, a, was, a, was an insincere. And Jesus still doesn't say who it was. Jesus still doesn't give the guy up. Verse 20, he said to them, it is, he, he, he's reaffirming, it is one of the 12. One who dips with me in the bowl. What's the bowl? The bowl was was a little bowl with uh, some crushed or dried fruit, and it was mixed with with vinegar. Uh, it was used to dip the stuff. And the point is this: it, it, it's like the it's like the bowl of salsa or the bowl of guacamole. Well, no, the bowl of guacamole. I'm the one who's dipping in it myself because I love guacamole. But when you if you and I go to Extapa, we all partake of the salsa. We are all dipping into that bowl. And that's exactly the point here. They were all dipping into the bowl. Some some scholars and some some uh, uh, commentaries have said, well, uh, there were smaller bowls that you know were limited to really three or four guys. If Jesus had said that, that's about eight guys off the hook. Only three or four guys would would now be under the radar. But they have no clue who it is. They are all dipping into the same. Bowl, and he is just repeating. He is re-emphasizing. He is reasserting what he said before. No more, no less. It's one of you. And like the first time he said it, though Jesus knows it's Judas, he doesn't reveal Judas. And here's the big elephant in the room: Why not? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't I? Isn't that? What we would, wouldn't we think that's the logical thing to do? The right thing to do? It's Judas. 
He's the guy. You need to watch out for him. Stop giving him money. Now, I think there's I think there's two reasons why Jesus doesn't throw Judas under the bus. One, one is theological and one is very personal and, and practical. The theological reason is that revealing Judas would have upset the timetable. Revealing Judas, identifying Judas as the betrayer, would have upset and compromised Jesus' appointed hour and manner of dying. And I guarantee, or I would say very likely, there are four men at this table who, if if Jesus were to point the finger and label Judas and say, it's him, he's the scoundrel, be careful not to point at anyone in particular when I do that. If, if Jesus were to call Judas out, there are four men who I have little doubt would, would just impulsively run at Judas and make a short end of him. Impulsive Peter, Simon the Zealot, the, the Zealots were terrorists, so he's a reformed terrorist, but he's not that far removed from his former ways. And remember, the, the zealots were, were pro-Israel. J- Jesus has revealed himself as their king. You think a, you think a slightly reformed zealot's not going to do whatever it takes to protect the king? The one who's going to usher in? So, so you have the two Simons. And then you have the, the, the thunderous boys. John and James. Jesus, those Samaritans, they didn't believe you. Can we call down fire and, th- fire on them? Like Sodom and Gomorrah? Ooh. You think those four guys wouldn't hesitate to take Judas out if Jesus so much does? It's him. The, the divine timetable would have been compromised because likely Judas wouldn't have left that room alive. But even if he did leave that room alive, do you think, I mean, his whole plan is, is resting on his, on the, the, the premise that he can lead the Sanhedrin to Jesus when there's no one around. If Judas knows that the whole group knows, do you think Judas thinks that he can approach Jesus at all? No. So there, there's a theological reason why Jesus is not, why, why Jesus is tight-lipped about the identity. It would compromise, it would upset the divine timetable of when and how Jesus must die as the Passover lamb. And I remember that there's a there's a, a alleged contradiction. If Jesus is celebrating the Passover now, how is it that he could die on the Passover the next day? Did that ever keep anyone up at night? Okay, good. Then I don't need to explain it. I'll probably explain it at some point because it's 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 burning a hole in my pocket, but not today. So theologically, we understand why Jesus is tight-lipped, but I think a practical and a very personal reason. Oh, heavens, I didn't hit the timer. All right, 15 minutes. There's a personal and practical reason uh, why Jesus remains tight-lipped. And I think think Jesus is showing love to Judas. Does that surprise anybody? I mean, don't we, we just associate Judas as someone who needs to be hated and reviled, and he's just a nasty, filthy degenerate, reprehensible man. Jesus is showing love to Judas. And I think partially this is because Jesus is so lovable. He has so much love in him that he can love even the most unlovable man. But something that Scripture tells us is that God has a love. God has different kinds of love. There is a special 
an effectual love that he has for his elect. There is a love that he has that sees men and women saved. Then there is a love that he has for his whole creation. There's a general love that he has for all people, whether they accept him or reject him. And in systematic theology, we call this common grace. Just as God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, God has a love that is extended to everybody. And the fact that even reprobate, degenerate sinners, and y'all know what's what's on the news these days, you all know some of the reprehensible evil that people are capable of. The fact that they, and the fact that you, and the fact that I were allowed to take another breath of air when we were yet sinners and enemies of God, that is common grace. It's a love that God gives to people everywhere, irrespective of their eternal destiny. Mark 10.21, you'll remember the rich young ruler who ultimately went away sad because he could not fulfill Jesus' conditions for eternal life. Before, before he turned away, Mark 10.21 tells us that Jesus felt a love for him. And unless you're going to speak where the Bible remains silent, we can conclude he did not become a believer, yet Jesus felt a love for him. And so Jesus has a love for Judas. What is he doing with this love? I think he's doing, as Steve Lawson says, that love seeks to cover up the faults of another rather than exposing it until it is absolutely necessary. I think he gets that from 1 Peter 4, 8, which says to be fervent. That word is the word used to describe muscles when they are taut. You ever seen like a big strong man when he's, Lifting something, or when he's when he's exerting himself, you know, opening the mayonnaise jar, and you see the muscles just bulge out. You have to imagine they're on me, but uh, th- that tautness of muscles—that's the idea. Be taut, be be stretched, be fervent in your love for one another. Why? Why be fervent in your love? To what end should you be fervent and stretched to the point of pain in your love for one another? Well, I'll tell you why. Says Peter. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't forensically justify and doesn't forgive. But love has a way of being a balm. Not bomb. Balm. For strife and disruption. And otherwise un undesirable situations proverbs ten twelve says hatred stirs up strife but love covers all transgressions proverbs seventeen nineteen, he who conceals a transgression seeks love but he who repeats a matter you could say gossip or slander we're just getting into somebody else's business that's not your own. He who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. 
So I hope you see that there is a time to disclose the truth. This doesn't mean that we should be indefinitely silent, that we should be lazy or or put off speaking the truth uh, because we're intimidated. There is a time to disclose the truth. There is a time to reveal what others would would wish would remain uh, hidden. There is a time to expose the sins of others. There is a time to name names. There is a time to name sins. There is a time and place to exercise church discipline. But beloved, it is, it is after every effort to reconcile and to admonish and to build up and to correct and rebuke after, after all those things have been exhausted. And I think... That is precisely what Jesus has been doing with Judas the whole time. He had, do, you, do you not see that he has, he has indirectly, by his announcement, he has indirectly let Judas know that he knows. And as Judas hears disciple after disciple after disciple asking in anguish in in a troubled and a sorrowful heart is it i could i be the one could i it's not me is it as he sees disciple after disciple after disciple saying that the intent is that his conscience might be doubly pricked first by the fact that he knows this is a dastardly thing to do but then seeing the anguish on his fellow's faces and in their in their voice how unlike many even within the church today even within christianity today sadly to say how unlike many is the lord jesus's christ is the is the response of the lord jesus christ where many today when they are wronged or when they hear of wrongdoing what are they so quick to do Hey, hey, George, did, did, you, did you hear what Cliff did? Did you, did you hear what's going on between Cliff and, and so-and-so? Or, or Sarah, did, did, you, did you hear what, what happened at Charlie's house? Did, did, you did? Oh, well, let's compare notes. Maybe you know more. Okay, okay, good. We'll, we'll talk later. But isn't that what we're so, we're so, we're so prone to gossip? We are so prone to share what is not ours to share, to repeat a matter to, okay, post on social media. Anybody? Phil Johnson, uh, 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 one of the one of the associate pastors at Grace Church, says, "Out of the heart, the the mouth tweets." How prone, how quick, how fast we are to let other people in on business that is not our right to share. And let that not be true of us. Rather, I, I hope you can see the patient restrained, self-controlled love of Christ towards even a reprehensible man as Judas. Let that beautiful quality be true of us today. Let the world see our love for one another. Isn't that how Jesus, isn't, didn't Jesus say that that's how the world would know we're disciples? That we are his disciples? Is Wow, these, these fellows don't throw each other under the bus. They don't bite and stab at each other. They, they're, they're not... They're not trying to get their pound of flesh from each other like everybody else is. Wow, they are different. Let that be true of us. In verse 21, we we see also the accountability of the betrayer. 
Now, Jesus has to say a word of comfort to the twelve because, let's be honest, they are unsettled. They are seriously unsettled with where the night's conversation has gone. Tonight was supposed to be a joyous night. It was supposed to have joyous and peaceful and uplifting conversation. And that conversation has now turned sour and dismal. We're not talking about how good God is and how God delivered our forefathers and he made us a nation. I mean, you, you heard the, 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 the song, Moses' song, or was it Miriam's song from Exodus 15? How many times was it the Lord did this, the Lord did that, the Lord did this? You didn't hear things like, we did this. It was the Lord did this. The whole point of the Passover was to remember and to celebrate and to be encouraged by what God had done for them. Only we're not talking about the good things God has done. We're now thinking about the fact that one of us could be so dastardly and underhanded as to betray Jesus. And so Jesus reminds them, and this is meant as a word of encouragement, that everything is going according, even this betrayal, it, what seems like a major setback, is exactly what God has said would happen, is exactly what God has ordained would happen. So he appeals to God's sovereignty. And th- this is what Charles Spurgeon says about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is a sweet pillow upon which you can lay your head at night. It is a beautiful truth that not only God is is in control over all, but is also working everything out, the good and the bad, for your good and for his glory. This sweet doctrine is medicine for the soul that you can take in every season of life. The sovereignty of God is, says Spurgeon, medicine for the soul. It is a comfort to know with something as horrible as this, this is, it hasn't caught God off by surprise. It hasn't caught God off guard. It's important to know that when it looks and feels like our lives are falling apart, that God still sits on his sovereign throne. Right? Is that, is that not practical for us? Anyone ever feel like their lives are spiraling out of control? Am I the only one? I guess I am the only one. I should just preach to myself then. Jesus, Jesus links this. He, he says, uh, do you see that 4, verse 21? It's a, that's a causal link. That is, a, that is an explanation word. What he is about to say is an explanation for what has come before. You, you, could, you could replace it because. The, because the Son of Man, all of this is going to happen. Me being betrayed, there being a betrayer in the midst, that I'm going to be taken from you, that I'm going to be delivered over like a rag doll, that I'm going to be killed. This is because the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. And do you see how this sets the betrayal in the greater context? 
Do, do you see that it explains the part that Judas plays in the greater narrative? Contrary to what Schweitzer said, contrary to what many theologians in the last several centuries have said, Jesus is not a helpless victim who was blindsided by the unexpected and unfortunate betrayal of one of his disciples. Jesus rather has come to do everything that was written of him to do. He has accepted his coming suffering as the Son of Man. The Son of God can't suffer, bleed, and die because God is eternal. But the Son of Man can. Because he took on human nature, he who could not die can now die. It's what was written for him to do. It hasn't caught him by surprise. He's accepted his coming suffering, and that requires him being delivered over to the religious leaders by, and the means of that is going to be being betrayed, being delivered over, being handed over by one of his own. All that must happen to fulfill what the scripture says will happen. The sovereign decree of God must stand. But that being said that, having thrown out the sovereignty of God, I want you to see, and this is so important, beloved, that Jesus doesn't excuse human responsibility. The sovereignty of God does not cancel or negate or make no room for human responsibility. Didn't we see in the last passage, Jesus sovereignly ordained the upper room. Uh, Peter and John still had to go and find it, and they still were given work to do to prepare the Passover meal. The sovereignty of God, human responsibility, what God does and what man does are like two rails that don't contradict each other, but they carry... They, 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 they go along together perfectly. Jesus doesn't excuse human responsibility. And I, so I, the, the, the takeaway is I, I, I want you to see that nobody is making Judas do what he doesn't want to do. You get that? Nobody is, God is not holding Judas down saying, no, you didn't, you didn't want to betray me, but you're going to betray me because that's what's ordained for you to do. Ha, 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 ha. Nobody is making Judas go against his better judgment. And God isn't forcing Judas to, 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 to go where he didn't want to go, to do what he didn't want to do, to make arrangements he didn't want to make, to make deals he didn't want to make. Remember, John said he was a, he was a thief from the beginning. He cared about money from the beginning. And the point is this, is on judgment day, Judas will not be able to stand before God and say, but God, your decree was that this would happen. You ordained that, that this will happen. God will say, no, Judas, it was your sin that you must account for. Human, uh, divine sovereignty does not override or negate human responsibility. They go hand in hand. Jesus says, but woe to that man by whom or through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to that man 
That is, that is a, it's either a cry of, of, of lamentation and pity or it is a, or it is a, uh, a cry of, of judgment. And I think it's both, I think both are applicable. Woe to that man. Woe to that man. And in other words, Jesus is saying, and he's saying this to everyone, not just to Judas. He's saying it to the whole group. Don't pity me. Don't pity. Don't feel sorry for the Son of Man for this unfortunate thing befalling him. This has to happen. And after it does happen, God's going to raise him up and God's going to glorify him. And God's going to demonstrate how his suffering and death and resurrection were always the plan. I mean, just read the book of Acts. You want somebody to pity? You don't pity the Son of Man. You want somebody to pity? You pity the man by whom or through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That is a man who needs your pity. Why is that? And and, and notice, do do you see how Jesus is, he is already um, distancing himself, uh, in, in a sense, that man. He said, one of you will betray me, but... Woe to that man. Do you, do you feel the distance already being set down? Now, why would it be good for that man had he not been born? Or rather, why? I just answered my own question. Why, is he, why does he need to be pitied? Because it would have been good for that man had he not been born. And fortunately, that man has been born. And there are not good things in store for him. I can remember when I was a child and I would selfishly and very childishly say when, when, when I didn't get my way and something I'd had my heart set on, I didn't get it, I would say, you know, as a way to try to be vindictive against my parents, you know, I wish I hadn't been born. And, and some of us might think along the same lines if, if if we think about you know our woes and our poor circumstances and we we don't understand what god might do or will do with our circumstances but that's all subjective that's all in the realm of could might we we don't you don't know what god will do you don't know what will happen here is an objective statement of the truth it would have been good had he not been born but because he is born woe to that Man. In other words, there is no amount of goodness, there is no pleasure in life that that man, that Judas, there is no good in store for him, there is no achievement, there is no pleasure, no accolade that he could possibly have. No privilege, no joy, no satisfaction, no goods. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that he could even remotely have ahead of him that will compensate for what awaits him in judgment. Edmund Hebert says there is a sinning which utterly negates, in other words, completely wipes out the good of human existence. And I believe this text demonstrates that sinning to be the rejection of Jesus Christ because one's heart has become so hard that he would quite literally betray God and see him put to death so that he can pursue his own selfish interests. Jesus has laid it all out and he's given Judas every chance to repent. But as Lenski says, 
one who could resist impacts such as this is utterly beyond hope. So pity that man. Woe to that man. What should we walk away with? How should this text impact us? I want to give you three. And I have no idea where I am on time, so I'm just going to go try to go through it expediently. Okay. Says the guy who's going to get up after me. I want you to see, and I, uh, I don't have, Eric, if you're looking frantically for, the, for the, this on the PowerPoint, they're not there. I want you to see that Jesus is absolutely sovereign. This is something that the previous text demonstrates. This is something that this text demonstrates. Jesus is absolutely sovereign. When normal men couldn't possibly know that there was a betrayer, and even if there was, that he couldn't possibly know who it was, Jesus knows. And he's always known. I want you to see, in addition to being absolutely sovereign, Jesus is gracious. Jesus is gracious. He is giving Judas the opportunity to repent. He is using the emotional weight of his fellow's sorrow to add to that weight that it might bring him to repentance. He's given him every opportunity and he will give him one further opportunity to repent. Jesus is gracious. But I want you to see, and I think this is the one that speaks, perhaps with his sovereignty, I think this is the one that speaks most loudly in this text. Jesus is just. Jesus is just. He will hold Judas responsible for his sin. And I think... In light of what we looked at earlier about the need to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves, there are many out there who will be like Judas. There are many out there who right now are like Judas. They look very convincing on the outside, but remember what Jesus says, there will be many in that day who will say, Lord, Lord, and what will Jesus say? Do you realize when when Jesus says there are many who say who will say in that day Lord Lord that's church talk Those outside of Israel those outside of his fear didn't call him Lord to say Lord implied that you recognized his his right his his rule his reign And when he says Lord Lord that's emphatic the, the idea is those who externally look like they recognized his lordship that's church people and there will be many in that day who will say lord lord and jesus will say you i never knew you in judas we see how one can be so close to jesus and not yet know him examine yourself Judas shows us how close one can be to the truth and not yet believe it. Examine yourself. 
Jesus shows us how close one can be to the gospel and still not receive it. How close one can be to hell, to heaven and still go to hell. How close he can come, one can come to the narrow gate and still not yet go through it. Examine yourself. Don't examine your neighbor. Examine yourself. Don't examine your spouse or your children or your parents. Examine yourself. Judas shows how close one can be to Jesus in proximity and yet still sell his soul to the devil. Examine yourself. Judas shows us how close one can come towards eternal life and yet still suffer eternal loss in hell. Judas shows us how close one can come to being saved but end up being damned. And Judas shows us that being privileged, remember he was, he was an apostle, or a disciple. Not many people had the privilege of being with Jesus for three years. He was a privileged man. He saw many things. Judas shows us that being privileged, being, being involved, and being very religious, I mean, think about it. Judas was at some point a gospel preacher. Think about that. He went out and actually preached the gospel. He did good works. Being involved doesn't save you. Being religious doesn't save you. Being privileged doesn't save you. Being within proximity of Jesus and his people doesn't save you. Beloved, examine yourself. Do you know him. That's something I hope you will do as we approach the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Give us sobriety. Help us to help us to see where we really are. Your word says that you are You are faithful to forgive us our sins if anyone were to come to you and repent and believe. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from not just some, not most, but all unrighteousness. How good of a promise that is. If there's anyone here who's wavering, who's been on the fence, or who's been self-deceived, Lord, break through that self-deception And by your redemptive love, bring them to salvation. Amen.